0: A quick programming note, this will be the last new episode dropped for a week or so as I'll be taking a little break to take some of my employer-issued vacation. In the meantime, go back and listen to episodes you've unacceptably missed, re-listen to your many, many favorites, and make sure you're subscribed so you're notified when I drop a new episode whenever I get back and get caught up. Now, on with the show. Let's go be logical Christians. Change is the only constant in life. At least so said Heraclitus, the Greek philosopher who lived in Ephesus around 500 B.C. or B.C.E. if you're a rank pagan. And I think what we know for sure is that with global warming and evolution that's exactly what we see all the time. Except when we don't. But even then it's probably happening just really slowly or fast, depending on what we need it to be and to do based on our narrative and agenda at the time. And this episode may or may not be about the rapidity and or languidity, which is fun to say, of the aforementioned issues. On today's episode, we'll find out why the moon people are constantly dealing with motion sickness, but we won't care as we've got bigger fish to dodge. Then we'll see no evidence of evolution, but we'll see it faster than ever before. And finally, we'll strive to understand why the planet waited so long just to squeeze everything in that it's ever done in the last 5 to 10,000 years. So grab your Dramamine, hold on tight, and try not to put too much thought into this, because in keeping with the spirit of change, no, I'm too stubborn for that. Here we go. Look, I know what you expect from me and from this podcast. Don't even act like I don't know what you expect from me and from this podcast. And and this is admittedly my fault. I know that you expect a a light-hearted look at silly stories, a a few yuck-yucks, some bibly stuff, basically a breath of fresh air, and then you can just go on with life. But every once in a while, something so serious... Something so imminently dire comes across one of my news feeds, that, despite the horror, I feel it's my job—nay, my duty—to bring it to your attention, regardless of the terror that this may cause. So before I go on, know that you've been warned. If you're subject to night terrors, if you have a weak heart, or if you have heart terrors and experience weak nights, then I beg of you to proceed with caution. Found on TechTimes.com headline, NASA to create new framework as moon wobble 2030 alarms scientists. My friends, 2030 is less than eight years away. And if that isn't scary enough, there's something about the moon wobbling. And that can't be good, right? Here's the gist of the article. First, there are a few things that we all know for sure. One, man-made climate change, specifically global warming, is definitely, definitely real. Don't, don't even say it's not real, it's real. Number two, the seas are rising out of control. Number three, floods are getting worse every single year. And four, hurricanes last year were the worst ever every single year. Now, we also know that the moon controls the tides. I split this one out separately because... It's the one with actual real science behind it. And you may never have thought about it. I never have until I started researching for this review. There is purpose behind it, and we'll get to that. Anyway, the moon wobbles. Why? Don't know. Could have been designed that way, could have been a large meteor strike, maybe aliens. All we know is that it wobbles. This basically means that it has a rotational axis that's slightly tilted compared to the rotational axis of the earth, so as the moon spins and the earth spins and the moon rotates around the earth and the earth and moon rotate around the sun, the moon has what we perceive as a very slow wobble. And when I say slow, we're talking about a cycle of about 18.6 years or so. Due to this wobble, the gravitational force on the Earth changes over the course of that cycle. The first half of the cycle apparently doesn't have that great of an effect on the Earth. Actually, a somewhat lesser gravitational force. But the second half of the cycle places more gravitational force on the Earth, which in turn will cause somewhat exaggerated tidal activity. And this, my friends, is probably the death knell. So we only have about seven and a half years to get all we can get, to to go for the gusto be all you can be just do it be the quicker picker upper i don't know i ran out of commercial based motivational quips let's move on sure this wibbly wobbly cycle has um always been there but man caused boiling of the oceans and heat death of the planet is well also not not actually brand new but it's getting worse because we're doing literally nothing about our greenhouse gas emissions except for all of the stuff that we're doing about our allegedly planet-killing greenhouse gas emissions. So because of our refusal to live like cave people of old, because of the rapidly melting and disappearing glaciers and ice sheets and and the total extinction of all polar bears that comes with that, because of the massive amount of heat we insist on pumping into the oceans, causing them to expand and grow, well, sir, or or ma'am, and, and those are really the only two options possible. The flooding will be more severe than ever before, scientists predict. It's okay, though, not all is lost. NASA and the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, or NOAA, or NOAA, will be using past data, a bunch of assumptions, some statistics, and probably a Commodore 64 to produce a model to predict flood scenarios over the next 60 years. Now, I don't know if they've started this. I don't know when the results of the model will be revealed. But I can almost guarantee you it'll predict our doom. I mean, regardless of the results of the model, the foregone conclusion is that we're all doomed. So if the model says we aren't, yeah, they'll go in and tweak the assumptions used to build the model until it falls into line with the accepted narrative. And um, no, I'm I'm not actually joking about that. That's exactly what they'll do. Because if they don't have fear they have no other way to control at least the American population and psychologically manipulate them to capitulate to their demands. Okay, so I think we need to discuss a few things before we run out and buy sandbags and new galoshes. First, why do we call them galoshes? (laughs) I'm glad you asked. Turns out in the Middle Ages in France, also called Gaul at that time, there was a certain type of shoe or boot called a Gaulish or a Gaulasse, which were leather uppers and carved wooden soles and they didn't even have doctor shoals inserts so uh, youch well when the romans conquered gaul they borrowed the gaulish boot style the leather protection apparently made its way to more modern days when particularly women's boots were made of fabric but galoshed with leather in order to protect them from water and weather and that's probably enough of that rabbit trail now I'm not going to go into climate change, the unscientific and arrogant thought that man is powerful enough to break the earth. I've gone over that a number of times in the past, and I'm sure I'll cover it many times in the future. The other three points I do want to touch on. First, regarding sea level rise. Okay, yeah, that's a big maybe. And I don't care what agency, what politician, or what scientist tells you that the oceans are rising. They literally don't know, nor can they. Even with very modern, satellite-based measurement, there's almost no way to definitively prove global sea level rise. We can quantify local level rise or fall, but because of how many factors go into a planetary sea level, we just don't know. And just to dispel the idea that if the glaciers melt, the seas rise, any ice that's currently in the water—ice sheets, glaciers, icebergs, etc— are nothing but giant ice cubes. Just like your nice cold beverage with a handful of ice cubes won't overflow the glass if the cubes melt, neither will large ice cubes overflow a large container of water, you know, the planet. The only ice or snow that could contribute would be the land-based. So think Greenland or the frozen tundra, the real stuff, not Lambeau Field, or mountain snowpack. And even then, it has to be a large enough amount to affect the globe. And it can't just be seasonal. So, although there are fancy graphs, nobody really can say for sure. That said, if we take these climate scientists at their word, and remember, they have a stake in if the climate needs fixing or not, the worst that the levels are rising are about 1 to 1 of an inch per year. I, I kind of think we can noodle our way around that. If we can keep New Orleans pumped out and dry f- for some reason, I think we can manage a very very slow creep of water per year. As for hurricanes, are they getting worse? Is every year worse than the year before? The predictions always say that they will be, but are they? Well, data, as I've found, is never in a format that's actually useful, but I did find a Wikipedia listing of hurricanes for the United States by year. Pulled the data into Excel, Did a bunch of manipulation so I could make it usable, compiled the results, put it into a graph, and looking at data from 1850 to 2019, the answer is no. By a large margin, no. Now I'm going to try and put a picture of the graph in the description of the podcast if you're curious. I'm not sure if it'll work right for all players, but I can but try. Anyway. Throwing a trend line on the graph, we show that the number of predicted hurricanes dropped from 24 in the decade of the 1850s to about 18 in the decade of the 2010s. There are always outlier years, and I guarantee that we'll have years with increasing hurricanes in the future and likely decades with increases. But what we've seen for the last 70 years is that the number of hurricanes is dropping dramatically. That's the raw data. I guarantee that what you're told on whatever mainstream media source you're listening to is manipulated data. One thing that really gets my goat, and I don't even have a goat, is when so-called scientists manipulate data. Just let the numbers speak. If they disprove your theory, you have a bad and or stupid theory. Get a new theory. But without fail, specific boundaries, caveats, and qualifiers will be applied to the raw data to make it say, again, what they need it to say. And this can be applied to our flooding events as well that, as we all know, are getting worse and worse. And when this moon weebles and wobbles in the wrong direction but doesn't fall down, the floods will probably destroy all of mankind and womankind and all other made-up kind. So is that the case? Are floods getting worse? Well, again, I grab the data, uh, useless form of data, manipulated it in Excel, compiled, graphed, and the result is yes. When looking at the same time period of 1850 to 2009, and I didn't have up to the 2019 year, so I cut it off at 2009 to be consistent, the flooding has increased dramatically. But again, the data is curious when looking at the graph. See, from 1850 to 1889, the number of floods is flat at about 10 or less. Remember, this is the U.S. data. Keep that in mind. Then there's a dramatic rise from 1890 to about 1919. Then it's up and down through 2009. So because I'm a curious fella, I split out the data from 1920 to 2009. And would you believe that when you throw a trend line on that graph, the trend is actually slightly down? I'm also going to try and put both of these graphs in the description if you're curious. Hopefully, if things work right, you can go check them out. So why the massively dramatic increase from 1890 to about 1920? Global warming? Weather weirding? Cars and air conditioners and electricity production? Cow farts? Well, I put about two minutes of good hard pondering into this, and here's what my logical reasoning came up with a combination of industrialization and population growth, both of which pushed into different, new at least to us, parts of the country, and to the edges of the country, building on or near the ocean fronts, and building to the naturally occurring transportation channels of rivers. In other words, the water didn't come find us, we went and found the water, and floods weren't happening more, there were just more floods that directly impacted us that we cared about. So is flooding getting worse? No, it's not. This is literally banging our head into a brick wall, then complaining that we have a headache and blaming the wall, but doing it more and harder at the same time. Again, I feel confident that any data Any fear-based reporting you're fed is nothing but manipulated, caveated, and qualified data. Not the whole, complete, true picture. The reality is, this is man living in a godless world entirely constructed by random chance. When there isn't a designer, when there's no design, when there's nothing firm to rest on or fall back on— this is the kind of terror that grips the hearts of man. And I'm not talking about the John Careys and Al Gores and Bill Nyes, Barack Obamas of the world. They either don't believe in global warming or don't believe it's going to be that big of a deal, or they're sure that their money and status will rescue them. What they do believe is that there's plenty of money held by numerous fools that they can help them part with. No, I'm talking about the Greta Thunbergs of the world. This shrieking person i think she's 18 now she's been told her whole life that the world is going to end it's going to burn up that she has no future that she has no hope and it's because we the rest of us don't care we'd rather get ours now and watch her burn she's angry she's admittedly terrible but she's scared she's more than scared she is terrified Something like this moon wobble combined with man-caused destruction of the planet will ensure her destruction. She literally has no hope, no reason for joy, no peace, no love because she has no faith, no knowledge, and likely right now no interest in a god. Although she's nails on the chalkboard to me, it's very sad to watch. Her entire life has been stolen from her so far, all because of a lie. But there is design. There are universal laws, there are frequencies, vibrations, cycles to everything. Man, although the image-bearer of God, is not, in fact, God. We are a creation of God, a special creation, a unique creation, but still a creation. Now, have you ever thought, why do we have the tides? We know the moon controls them, we know that the tide goes in and out, but have you ever thought, why it goes in and out? I never had until a few minutes ago, so I looked it up, because once the question formed, the answer of, there must be a reason, came immediately. Well, there is, no, are reasons. Let me give you a few. One, it affects reproductive activities of fish and growth of ocean plants. Two, shellfish, like crabs and mussels, snails, as well as seaweed, live in the general tidal zone. Without the tide running in and out, cleaning, bringing in food, these living things would die off. That wouldn't make them happy, and it would affect our food supply. 3. Shipping, transportation, military uses the tides to extend the harbor inland to some degree. 4. Climate. The sun is the heat source for the planet. The oceans are the heat sink for the planet. They absorb or release heat as needed to try to maintain a relatively steady climate. The constant flowing and churning of the water stirs the water, allowing for the proper climate and weather maintenance of the planet. 5. Energy. Some nations or communities use the force of the tides to produce energy. And there are likely many, many more things that the tide does. It almost seems designed. And knowing that if the moon was a little farther away or a little closer, we'd either have no tides and none of the life-giving planet-maintaining benefits of the tides, or we'd have tides that would literally violently flood the planet every single day, it almost seems like the delicate balance of life, tides, and the moon were also designed perfectly. The study of tides, the moon wobble, flooding potential, are all worthwhile fields of study. These could definitely play an important role in the future, and if done correctly, could give us great information that we could use if, and only if, the accurate, unbiased models predict something of concern. But to totally discount a creation, and more importantly, a creator, results in exactly what we've been getting, what we are getting, and what we will be getting—faulty conclusions based on poor models. Because of selective and or bad data, due to a forced narrative that's being pushed either out of fear, greed, or a desire for power. All the while, the same people that know more about the design that God created, set in motion, and maintains, either refuse to see God or choose to ignore Him. And because of that, all they can do is rely on their own fallible wisdom, driven by human emotion and motive. They're right in their unregenerate thinking to believe that man is the God of the universe. Even in a fallen state, mankind can sense that we're created in the image of God, that there is something unique and special about us, well beyond the random chance of evolution. And they also know that there must be a highest authority. They just wrongly place that burden on the shoulders of men who are never designed to carry it. And based on that flawed thinking— They're correctly living in fear of man destroying the environment, or the planet, altogether, as we are the masters of our own destiny, the wise, wise man. As Christians, we have a higher view. Let me encourage you, if you're a Christian and you believe in this idea that we're going to destroy the planet, you need to get into the Bible and read about the power, control, and will of a sovereign Creator God. You and I, and 8 billion of us, aren't strong enough to thwart or even change one atom, one desire of God's plan and will. We work within it. And our prayers and our petitions matter. They definitely serve a purpose, and we are absolutely to do that, but they matter within the scope of God's ultimate will. You may also want to read about fear. We don't purposefully trash the earth, but we don't need to live in fear that we are destroying it by using plastic straws or driving gas-powered vehicles. We also don't need to fear that a wobbly moon that for thousands of years has wobbled around during naturally occurring warmer and cooler periods on the planet will wobble us out of existence. God not only has the whole world in his hands, he's got the wobbly moon in his hands and it wobbles to the precise degree it's supposed to wobble—no more, no less. And the same can be said about the tides. Not one grain of sand will be hit by the tide that's not supposed to be the tide will only come in and go out to the exact fraction of an inch and go as many places to the right of the decimal as you want as God has ordained it to go. Although the context of 1 Thessalonians 4, 13-14 is regarding the resurrection of the dead in Christ, reassuring those still alive that just as Jesus was resurrected, so too would be those children of God who had already passed on, I believe that the concept of of the passage can be carefully applied more broadly and is apt in many situations, including this one. The text reads, "...but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep." How many people are grieving as someone that has no hope because the planet is being destroyed and catastrophe is imminent because not only do they not believe in the resurrection of Jesus, they don't believe in a God at all. Or if they do, they have such a low view of God that he's nothing but a relatively weak, bitter old man ready to punish you if you step out of line, yet has no control over this creation. For those that know God, rely on God, put our faith on the one who died for us and gave us that faith when we had none of our own to give, if he can resurrect the dead, if he can lay down his own life and take it up again, how difficult is it to create and maintain a mere planet? We can be joyful and peaceful knowing that we have hope. And if it's his will to maintain or destroy this planet, we can be assured that God has all of this in his hand, and his ways are higher than our ways, so he will always do what brings him the most glory, and he's promised that for his children, all things will ultimately work out for good. Not always the easiest, but always the best. We are to be caretakers of the earth, not worshipers of it. We are to fill up and use the earth and all the resources available to us, not tiptoe around hoping to not disturb Mother Gaia, we are to place our hope and faith and cast all of our cares on God, not in and on ourselves. For those of us that truly believe in the God of the Bible, a wobbly moon is nothing more than a wobbly moon. If evolution is real, why don't we see monkeys turn into humans today? Have you ever heard that argument? Have you ever used that argument? It's supposed to be a gotcha argument, forcing the evolutionist to his knees, begging for mercy, but typically they just respond with something like, well, that's not how it works. And, I mean, that's correct, sort of, per their theory, this isn't how it works. At least, that's what we thought, until now. Found on ScienceAlert.com, headline, Evolution may be happening up to four times faster than we thought. Massive study finds. Well... Now monkeys won't turn into humans four times faster than before! I know that I, for one, am excited about the prospect of what this might mean. It'll be fun to watch evolution just cruise on by. What was that? I'll say. A transitional form, a random scientist will reply. It'll be amazing. But before we get too excited, let's take a look at their proof, because I always thought that evolution took millions of years, so let's say that a Thing evolved to another thing in a mere one million years. Well, four times faster is 250,000 years. And seems like that's still hard to study. But maybe they have a DeLorean or a TARDIS or something. The study is done by an international research team from the Australian National University and the University of Exeter and looked at genetic variation. To which I say, hmm. The premise they're working with is that, quote, the more genetic differences there are in a species, the faster evolution can happen, as certain traits die off and stronger ones get established. To which I say, that's not how evolution works, by definition. But okay, let's let's go with this for just a moment longer. They call these genetic differences the fuel of evolution. So they looked at 19 wild animal groups around the world to look at genetic changes. A few of the animals they analyzed were the superb fairy wren, the spotted hyena, song sparrow, and the red deer. Admittedly, the study has spanned a relatively large amount of time. The average of all the groups is 30 years, with the longest study being 63 years and the shortest being a mere 11 years. The team took three years to compile the accumulated data so far, and I say so far because the studies are still ongoing for now. In compiling the data, they quantified how much species change had occurred from genetics and natural selection. The findings so far reveal that many more changes are happening than they first thought, so the fuel is much greater than they surmised before. Why is this important? Well, it will apparently allow them to model how fast a species can adapt Which is important, says the author, quote, with the world and its wildlife reeling from the ongoing effects of climate change. Knowing more about how quickly animals can adapt will be helpful in modeling which species will be able to survive and which won't. The concern is that as shifts in the global climate continue to accelerate, species won't be able to adapt in time. And there it is. This is all about climate change. And the only thing that can save animals is fast evolution. No, not not evolution exactly, but adaptation to changing climates. You know, animals that have allegedly been alive for millions of years, surviving temperatures much warmer than we are today, and much colder than anything on record. But now, now, because of man's climate sins, the animals will be the ones paying the price unless they have enough evolution fuel. But there is hope. We've seen rapid evolution in the past. One of the researchers from the Australian National University said the following, quote, A common example of fast evolution is the peppered moth, which prior to the Industrial Revolution in the UK was predominantly white. With pollution leaving black soot on trees and buildings, black moths had a survival advantage because it was harder for birds to spot them. Because moth color determined survival probability and was due to genetic differences, the populations in England quickly became dominated by black moths. Okay, so let's start with some definitions, shall we? And these may not be Webster's approved definitions. But these are the practical, working definitions when discussing evolution, and the reason I say that and the reason I'm doing it this way is because you're being snowed. It's a bait-and-switch. They tell you that they're talking about evolution, then, you know, BAM, yank evolution out from under you, and you fall neatly on top of science that everyone, creationists and evolutionists, agree on. So here we go. Adaptation. Adaptation is not evolution. Adaptation is simply a variation in the kind or in the species based on external factors. There is no new information added. In most cases, information is lost, or at best, exists as a very recessive trait. Adaptation does not change one kind of thing to another kind of thing. Genetic variations. This is nothing but glitches in the DNA or traits becoming more or less prominent. Again. Variations are not adding any new information, they are simply working within their defined structure. In many cases, a variation can be synonymous with a mutation, a mistake in the genetic code. Again, variations do not change one kind of thing to another kind of thing. Evolution. This is the big one. Evolution, by definition, is an upward process. Although a trait may be lost, it will only be lost if it benefits the whatever we're talking about and will be replaced by a brand new thing that's better. This is why people make the joke about, why would we humans lose our tails? How handy would that be? And, um, yeah, that's correct. There are some who try to say that it was a defensive measure as animals can be caught by the tail, but the benefits to having a functioning tail would far outweigh that one potential negative. Evolution, nearly every time it's discussed, is not talking about variations within a kind. Those that discuss it are talking about a different kind, something different and more advanced than what it was to begin with. There is one kind of evolution called microevolution that is variation within the kind. Although poorly named and wrongly lumped together with evolution, that is a kind of evolution that every scientist agrees happens. That takes care of the definitions, now just a bit of legwork. Adaptations and variations happen all the time. Quite often evolutionists study viruses and bacteria because of the very short lifespan, so many generations can be observed in a short period of time. As we should all know by now, the COVID virus has gone through a number of variants. These are the variations and adaptations, and what do we have? We still have a virus. It hasn't made one change. Toward upward mobility, it's just a virus. So, why the variance? Isn't that evolution? No, it's not evolution at all. It's microevolution at best. The variance in this case can be caused by two things. The first is genetic mutation. Evolutionists will claim that beneficial mutations is what evolution builds on. The only problem is, there's never been any of those observed anywhere. It's a fictional thing. But a mutation doesn't always mean something is now unable to sustain or progress, so a glitch in the code, passed from generation to generation, propagated along, could cause a viable variant. Additionally, natural immunity, and yes, even the so-called vaccine, at least on the original variant, would kill off a large majority of the viruses. However, as is nearly the case every time, there are some that are, for whatever reason, naturally immune to what we've thrown at it initially. Those few remaining viruses reproduce and make more that are resistant to the first attempt. This is why the vaccine, regardless of what we're being told, and completely disregarding all the warning signs about it, is proving to be less and less able to do anything against the current generation of the virus. This is also why those that have been sick may get sick again. Think of the flu. Again, this is not evolution. You started with a virus, you've gone through multiple generations, you've still got a virus. If we go back to the study claiming evolution crossed paths with Speedy Gonzalez, who, sidebar, is generally considered a racist stereotype at this point in our insane history, but that's a different story for a different day, this study said they followed and analyzed 19 animal groups around the world, an average length of 30 years, the longest being 63 years, and you know what they've still got? The exact same types of animals. The adaptations and piles of genetic variations haven't even started to make the slightest evolutionary change to the animals they're studying. Now the argument would be, it takes a lot longer than that, hundreds of thousands or millions of years, to which I'd say, prove it. Sure, maybe 30 years isn't long enough in the world of evolution to see something transitioning into something else, but you'd think if we were around for millions or billions of years by this point, that we would have intermediary creatures everywhere. We'd have half fish, half amphibian. We'd have half lizard, half bird. We'd have whales with back legs trying to walk on the land. We'd have missing links between apes and humans, but we have zero. There are literally none. The assumption is that it all happened in the past and isn't happening anymore. Is that logical? Why? Why isn't it happening anymore? What happened? Well, I mean, I say that except for the fact that it is happening at a rate up to four times faster than we believed it was previously, but not in anything we can observe. Furthermore, the only transitionary things these scientists can dredge up are fossils, bones, that an artist uses at the discretion of the scientist to create what those bones look like with flesh and muscle on them. We literally have no idea what they look like, but the evolutionary scientists know what they need it to look like and so it does. Problem is, bones are bones. There's no way to tell by the fossils if those bones helped create any offspring. They're just bones. Let's talk about the peppered moth now. I'll be honest, I'm shocked that they actually brought this one up. This was debunked years ago as being scientifically wrong, and in fact a complete hoax and scam. It's one of the botched, fudged evolutionary claims that literally everyone knows about. A very quick summary is that there were two colors of this certain type of moth in the UK. There was a light and a dark variation. They would land on trees and eat, I don't know, whatever they ate or whatever, I don't know, it doesn't matter. They landed on trees and birds would eat these moths. The trees they generally landed on were trees with a light-colored bark. As a result, there were a large number of light-colored moths, but very few dark moths. As the region industrialized and soot and pollutants got into the air, the tree bark became dark because of lichen growth. The bulk of the population of the moths apparently shifted to dark colored moths with a drastic reduction in the light moths. The claim was that this was rapid evolution of the moth for survival. So first we started with moths. Then we ended with moths. That's not evolution. At best this is adaptation. There were two large problems with this scientific conclusion, however. The first was the curious absence, although the author did mention it here, the absence of any discussion about the birds eating the moths. The fact is that with the lighter bark, the lighter moths were more easily camouflaged. When the color changed, the dark moths were harder to see, so this may be natural selection, but it's natural selection by the birds, naturally selecting the moths they could see. Since the moths had the genetic possibility of both light and dark color, As the light-colored moths were taken out of the population, the dominance of the dark-colored trait appeared. So as the moths listened to berry white moth and made sweet, sweet moth love, making little mothlets, the dominant darker trait took over. The second problem is that a good many of the dark-colored moths that were counted after the bark darkened, and a good number of those photographed on the dark tree bark, were already dead. They were glued on, to help pad the numbers. The peppered moth hoax was a scam perpetrated by scientists that, I don't know, I guess wanted fame. It wasn't a scientific study, it was a fairy tale. And even if the population shifted, that only proves genetic manipulation from outside actors, not evolution, as the moths were still all just moths. Now think of genetic manipulation this way. If I wanted an entire population of people over 7 feet tall, all it'd have to do is measure everyone after their growth is done, but before they reproduce. If you're over 7 feet, you live. Go make babies. If you're under 7 feet, well, you're not a whole lot of use to the world anyway, so we kill you. Over a few generations, we have a population of NBA centers with the odd recessive mutant popping up that's, of course, disposed of as soon as we know their glaring defect. So coming back to this study, what did they actually discover? Well, it was not evolution. There's still no actual literal proof for evolution, not any, nothing. All they discovered is that living things have the ability to sustain a massive amount of genetic variation and still produce the exact same thing. They also likely discovered, based on their comment about natural selection, that those that are born with a genetic mutation, which is never beneficial, that creature is generally eliminated one way or the other, which pulls the mutated trait out of the potential breeding population. When you boil it down, they discovered that the creation that God made in less than a day with regard to land animals was so perfect that even after 6,000 years of copies of copies of copies, 6,000 years of the curse of sin, 6,000 years of genetic defects, mutations, and adaptations, these created creatures, the same as humans, continue to recreate viable, identical copies. The problem with studies like this is the same problem you find from every evolutionist, everything you read in a textbook, everything you hear from a professor. Mutations happen, and although we can't show you any, some must be beneficial. Tiny changes, when compiled together, although we can't show you, must create something different. And although the only changes we can show you are losses of information, there must be some changes where information is gained. I mean, look. I get the idea of a magical sky god creating everything in six days, 6,000 years ago, is a hard pill to swallow for many. It's a fantastical tale, but the Bible tells us that we can know God exists by just looking around us. There's no way the intricacies, the symbiotic relationships, the vital systems for life, all developed by chance at just the right time. This design demands there be a designer. To think otherwise is simply lunacy. And to try to tie the two worldviews together, that either creates a weak, stupid God, or a cruel God, neither of which are the God of the Bible that I read. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that you must believe in a six-day creation 6,000 years ago to be saved, but I think a disbelief or a worldly compromise in this area sets up a number of theological issues that can't be remedied and sets you up for accepting compromise in all doctrines found in the Bible. So I personally believe it's much more vital for the Christian to get right than most would want to admit. That said, if you insist on saying that the scientists of the world must have it right, millions or billions of years in evolution through natural selection, survival of the fittest, and the compiling of genetic variations and adaptations, and all those must play a part in what we see today, let me encourage you to take the proof that you're handed such as a study like this one, and pick through it very, very carefully. I don't think it'll be long before a belief in evolution leaves you with your feet firmly planted in midair. To use another saying, if you truly dig into what you're being told is true, you quickly see that the emperor of evolution has absolutely no clothes whatsoever. So don't just accept something because the so-called experts tell you it's true. In all aspects of any worldview, Christian or pagan test everything although I wouldn't commend the theology such as it was of Thomas Jefferson, his following, quote, I believe is very apt. "...fix reason firmly in her seat, and call to her tribunal every fact, every opinion, question with boldness, even the existence of a god, because if there be one, he must more approve of the homage of reason than that of blindfolded fear." God does not fear you digging into every nook, every cranny, testing every claim, honestly questioning everything, because God will pass the test every single time. Try that with the theory of evolution. Try that with evolutionary scientists. You'll get a very different reaction, and a dramatically different result. Anyone. Anyone at all. I keep asking this question with one environmentalist on Facebook telling me I'm asking good questions and then not answering the question. This, based on the money we're spending, the problems we're creating, the agreements we're signing, the continuing or increasing poverty, starvation, and death we're inflicting, especially on third world countries, should be a vital question to be answered. Based on all the models, based on the panic and fear, based on the massive number of experts, legitimately very smart people, This should be a fairly straightforward question with a fairly simple answer. So what's the question? Well, I've mentioned it in past episodes. What is the correct temperature for the planet? The follow-up, if I could ever get an honest answer, the only honest answer being we have no idea, would be, then how do you know it's the current temperature? See, about 50 years ago or so, we were in danger of the next global ice age. There were articles being written about how we could put particulate in the air to capture and retain more of the sun's heat, or paint roofs of buildings black to warm the planet. And then 30-ish years ago, it shifted. Now it's global warming, a planetary heat death. And it's coming right now. Now, knowing the way the word of God explains the end of this age, yes, the heat death of this planet is coming, but it's going to be much, much warmer than the climate alarmists are predicting, somewhat warmer than the 1.5 degrees Celsius rise they're predicting is the irreversible destruction of all mankind. And man-made stuff, volcano eruptions, cow farts won't bring it on, nor will man-created solutions, carbon capture, electric vehicles stop it. As I've stated before, we have markers all over this planet that point us directly to God, to His design. We also have findings and revelations through what the world considers the only legitimate form of science that basically shouts, Young Earth Creation by God! Found on fizz.org, headline, Antarctic Glaciers Losing Ice at Fastest Rate in 5,500 Years Find Study Anytime I see something like, Mass grave found 7,000 years old, or oldest tree estimated at 10,000 years old, or in this case, we're losing ice at the fastest rate in 5,500 years, it makes me, and it should also make you, sit up and take notice. The first question to ask is, why? Why that time period, exactly? I mean, it could be nothing, it could be something, it's worth digging into, though. So dig we shall. Now first, I want to warn you. If you have a weak heart, if you have anxiety over being afraid, if you scare easily, sometimes resulting in a little dribbling, you may want to sit down. I mean, unless you're the last one I mentioned, in which case, don't don't sit down. You know, just saying. Per the first paragraph in the article, we find out, and here we go, the melting of the glaciers could contribute as much as... 3.4 meters, that's like 10 or 12 feet to those of us using real measurements, to global sea level rise over the next several centuries. Are you still with me? Do I need to stick a wallet in your mouth or a a nitro pill under your tongue? So we'll ignore the fact that they use those oh-so-scientific words of could and as much as, although by telling you I'm ignoring them. I'm not really Well, uh, Never mind. So let's break down these several centuries comment, shall we? First, 3.4 meters is 11.15 feet. Several centuries would have to be at least three, right? So that would be a sea level rise of 3.72 feet per century, which is 0. 0.037 feet or 0. 0.45 inches per year, which is 0. Zero, 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 one feet or one one thousandth of an inch every single day. Now look, I may just be a glass half full kind of guy with a cheery disposition, great sense of style, charming wit, but it almost seems like we could almost adapt to seven sixteenths of an inch of sea level rise per year. Maybe it's just me. Not the point of this review, so let's move on. Apparently, the east and west Antarctic ice sheets make up the Antarctic ice. The west is thinning at an accelerated rate over the last few decades, and a few glaciers are specifically vulnerable and are already causing the seas to rise. And you're mocking sea level rise. Flat Earther. Well, a study being led by the University of Maine and the British Antarctic Survey, which is quite possibly my favorite of the Antarctic surveys, and the Imperial College London is studying these vulnerable glaciers that are being bullied by global warming and found that they're retreating at a rate not seen in the last 5,500 years. Dr. Dylan Rood said, quote, "These currently elevated rates of ice melting may signal that those vital arteries from the heart of the West Antarctic ice sheet have been ruptured. Oh, ruptured arteries sounds bad in almost every case." Uh, he continues, quote, "Leading to accelerating flow into the ocean that is potentially disastrous for future global sea level in a warming world. Is it too late to stop the bleeding?" Well, I mean, from a ruptured artery, I'd almost have to say, maybe? I, I don't know. The article continues by stating that the mid-Hocene period, which is probably my favorite, but nah, just, just About 5,000 or so years ago, the climate was warmer, glaciers smaller, sea levels higher. Now, wait a minute. The climate was warmer? How? That literally can't be possible can it we know that man is causing global warming because of industry and cars electricity production etc can someone explain to me how the climate was notably warmer 5000 plus years ago so not going into the details they studied what used to be the beaches from back then analyzing what they found with radiocarbon dating and determining that there had been a steady fall in the relative sea level over the last 5,500 years Now, remember, the dating methods in general are not reliable. They're less than accurate because they're based on some very unscientific assumptions. However, that said, when the assumptions lose their wildness because they're assuming much younger ages, such as 5,000 years, the dating tends toward increased accuracy. So would I say they're spot on at 5,500 years? No, but I bet they're close. They also found that the rate of ice mass loss has increased to a rapid rate more recently. Now, the article doesn't say how they know that, and to be honest, I don't really care. There's a good chance that that's actually accurate. It's not worth arguing over, my opinion. The study concluded that the simplest way to interpret their findings is that the glaciers have been relatively stable for the last 5,500 years until recently, when they've started to retreat at the increased rate. From a scientific view... We could argue if the globe is warming or not. Some data suggests it is, some data suggests it was, but it hasn't been for about a decade. I think I'm satisfied saying that the global temperature at least has been rising slightly over the last 30 or so years, very generally over the last 100 plus years. We could also argue if the ice sheets are thinning, but I don't think I'd argue too strongly against that as data suggests that they are. The argument for ice then shifts to, is it seasonal? Is it just relocating, as ice in other locations on the globe has increased? But let's just say that the ice sheets, the glaciers, are in fact shrinking to some degree. We could question their carbon dating of 5,500 years ago, but as I said, I don't think that that recent of a date is worth quibbling over. But what this team of scientists refuses to ask is, why 5,500 years ago? Why was it warmer then? Why was there less ice then? Why does it appear that the glaciers have increased their rate of melting now? And further, they should be asking what the correct temperature of the planet is, which would correlate to what is the correct amount of ice on the planet and what is the correct sea level. Finally, they should really be asking is this a linear change, a logarithmic change, an exponential change, or a cyclical change? The problem with modern science is that they insist on using basic assumptions, and in doing so they shut off entire lines of questioning, hypotheses, reasoning, and tests. In short, they have handcuffed actual scientific inquiry and relegated it to a single area with impenetrable boundaries. So let's take an alternative look that could explain exactly why this study shows what it shows. We know that God, or according to John 1, God the Son, Jesus, created everything in six days. Regardless of what some professing Christians want to try to claim, a day at that time was within seconds to a few minutes different, shorter, than it is today. This is because although the Hebrew word for day, yom, can mean an indeterminate length of time, it can't mean that when bounded by limiting words like morning and evening and first. Any attempt to try to wedge evolution and millions or billions of years into the multiple times bounded word yom is doing nothing but expressing a belief that God's word is to some degree unreliable, as well as redefining what life actually means, the significance of sin and death, the very unique and special creation of Adam and Eve, and all sorts of other theological issues. It also calls into question either the knowledge or the honesty of Jesus. Bottom line... I think we may want to be very careful before we decide we know better than the Bible. So, a day is a day. We know that the creation was originally one main landmass surrounded by water around the rest of the globe. Again, we take the biblical account as accurate. We know that there was a specially prepared area, termed garden, in this landmass somewhere. My guess is that this was a substantially large garden. We know that a mist watered the land, as well as rivers springing up and originating from the center of the garden. I believe that the general consensus is that the garden, and I'd say logically the entire landmass, was more of a tropical kind of climate. Something perfect for humans to live in. Something perfect for animals and vegetation. We don't know the tilt of the earth, we don't know if there were ice sheets or glaciers anywhere in the world at that time, but it definitely wasn't an ice age. We know from very smart people adding up the ages in the Bible, all this creation took place around 6,000 years ago. Then sin entered the world, which brought death, but also brought thorns and thistles and weeds, and got Adam and Eve booted from the perfect garden. But this didn't change the tilt of the earth. This didn't split up the landmass. This didn't change the climate. So, for about 1,500, 1,600 years or so, this temperate to tropic climate existed. Then the Flood, Noah, the Ark. This is also most likely when the massive asteroid impacted the Earth near the Yucatan Peninsula. This Flood would have most likely been the cause of the crust breaking into the plates we have today. Some believe this is where Pangaea, the... Plates and land masses all shifting around the planet happened. I personally can't make the idea of Pangaea work, but we know that at the end of the flood, the mountains rose up, the valleys sunk down, and the earth was changed forever, appearing essentially like it does today, but now with definite climate differences based on where on the earth you go, as well as two very distinct poles. This is where Answers in Genesis surmises or hypothesizes the Ice Age actually took place, With the massive evaporation, the ash in the air from volcanoes erupting, the warmer waters, the planet would have gone through a large period of global cooling. They believe this is where massive polar ice caps grew much larger than they are today, that water levels were much lower because a lot of it was now ice, and the land bridge that we know existed between Asia and North America was revealed, as well as land bridges between Australia and Indonesia and mainland Asia. The Flood, and thus the beginning of the Ice Age, was about 4,500 years ago. This Ice Age would have lasted at least a few hundred years, just based on the global scale before it started to recede, as the planet started to warm again. So 4,000 years ago, warming started versus 5,500 years ago? Not that far off. And 5,500 years ago, there is evidence that it was warmer than it is now? Seems a little bit biblically logical, doesn't it? Now can this be proven? No, not beyond a shadow of a doubt, but neither can any theory that includes evolution. These are both logical hypotheses based on the interpretation of evidence and assumptions made. The difference is that Christianity also has a written record. In fact, it's the most verified written record of all time, with more independent historical manuscripts or copies than any other literary work. Additionally, most, essentially nearly all of the historical accounts of people, places, and events have been verified as to have actually happened with real, uncovered, discovered evidence. This isn't to mention that the theory of evolution literally makes no sense. So as I said, I can't tell you 100% for sure that what this study found was actually evidence of the flood and resultant ice age, but it sure seems like an interesting coincidence, doesn't it? And that brings us back to our original question. What is the correct temperature of the Earth? Well, if the Ice Age theory that I've admittedly ham-fistedly summarized from Answers in Genesis is correct, then there's a very good chance that although we have small intermediate cycles of warm and cool, the overall oscillation, the steady state temperature, hasn't been reached yet, or at the very least, we've actually cycled past the correct temperature to the warm side, and over the next decades, we'll start to cool again heading back toward the correct global temperature. We literally have no idea, no reference, no way to hypothesize with any level of accuracy as to the final correct temperature or even temperature range of the earth. Personally, I take an article like this one and see it has more aligned with the biblical account of the earth over the first couple thousand years after creation. I can easily see how it fits. What I can tell you for sure is that the theory that mankind is literally powerful enough to overcome the systems that God set in motion is laughable. The idea that we have set in motion a perpetual heating of the Earth that will continue for all time, unless of course we save the planet from ourselves, is ridiculous. The idea that we should be afraid that an additional 1.5 degrees Celsius or about 2 degrees Fahrenheit, even if it did cause the sea levels to rise up an entire half an inch per year, is flat out silly. And that's just tackling some of the systems and laws that God put in place. Even more ridiculous is the idea that we, the creation, can do anything to bung up the plans of our all-powerful, completely sovereign creator God. Nothing happens that God doesn't decree to happen, and you're free to take that as you'd like with the caveat that we must all admit that God has authority over every atom of everything he's created. So although every Christian says the same thing—we are to be custodians, caretakers of this earth, and all that's in it—we are not to worship the earth, and we are not to fear changes, cyclical or not, that the earth goes through. We know that man is resourceful, man is adaptable, but more importantly, man, beast, and all of creation, regardless of belief, regardless of worldview, is subject to the will of God. The Bible tells us over and over to fear not. Romans tells us that God can be clearly seen in the things that have been made. I'd say it's time for all of us to look for God in everything, even the alleged findings discovered by secular science. When we see Him, when we can find His sovereign hand throughout all of creation and throughout all of history, there is no better reason, in my opinion, to not only fear not, but to praise and worship a God more powerful than anything and everything He created. And with that, we've reached the end of this episode of the Logical Christian Podcast. If you've made it this far, the odds are you liked what you heard. I'd greatly appreciate a like, a comment, and a review if you're so inclined. As you likely already know, it all helps with the algorithms. Don't forget to subscribe so you can be notified whenever a new episode drops. And finally, if you found this podcast useful or entertaining, share it with your friends, your enemies, your in-laws, your outlaws. If you want to reach me, you can do so at lcpodcasts at outlook.com, or increasingly, I'll be using at lcpodcast on Getter. Lawrence J. Peter said, Against logic, there is no armor like ignorance. But Jesus told us that if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So stay in the word, stay logical, stay faithful, and until next time, God bless.